Our reading today is from Acts chapter 12. So if you want to open it up on your Bibles, it's page 1106. And it's a pretty amazing story, children, so listen up. Try and make it fun for you. Are we ready? Acts chapter 12. It was about that time King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to see Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads or four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what was happening was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. She recognized Peter's voice, but she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, sorry, <laughs> he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Cyrus and Sidon. Now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the God continued to spread and flourish. What would you dare to do for Jesus? Christian Ministry Open Doors asked that question earlier this year at the launch of their World Watch List 2023. It's their annual look at the top 50 countries 
where Christians suffer a very severe or high extreme persecution or discrimination for their faith. Would you defy a dictator, they ask? Would you worship in secret? Would you be willing to be rejected by your whole family or community? Would you risk your safety or even your children's safety? Would you put your very life on the line? Open Doors estimate that around one in seven Christians across the world are facing those very kinds of challenges. That's more than 360 million people. For Christians living in Africa, the stats change to one in five. In Asia, it's two in five. Now, here in the UK, extreme persecution of Christians is very rare. But even in this country, there is increasingly, isn't there, a cost to following Jesus? It can range from being mildly ridiculed and mocked by colleagues at work, friends, family, through to losing your job for expressing Christian views on moral issues. For those coming to faith here in the UK from other religious or cultural backgrounds, the cost can be even more severe. Well, for any who are currently counting the cost to one degree or another of being a Christian, Acts 12 should prove to be a great encouragement to you this morning. And for those not facing any meaningful opposition at this time, this account should serve as helpful preparation for when trials come. Because you can be sure that at some point, your faith in Jesus will be tested. Jesus himself promises, in this world, you will have trouble. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think we could summarize the message of Acts 12 like this. Expect, expect trouble when the gospel advances, but pray earnestly because ultimately Jesus will triumph. Let me say that again. Expect trouble when the gospel advances, but pray earnestly because ultimately Jesus will triumph. Let's look then at some of the detail. Three simple headings to help draw out this key message from Acts 12. First, verses 1 to 4, expect trouble when the gospel advances. Did you notice the stench of death in this chapter as it was read for us? Eighteen people killed in total, including all of the soldiers. Indeed, it begins and ends with death two contrasting deaths. So in the opening verses, we learn that King Herod is arresting and persecuting some who belong to the church. This is uh, King Herod Agrippa I, a grandson of Herod the Great, who uh, was responsible for slaughtering all the boys in Bethlehem under two years old uh, back in Matthew 2. And murder clearly runs in the family because like grandfather, like grandson, verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. James. One of the 12 apostles, given the nickname by Jesus, along with his brother John, sons of thunder, sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news about Jesus, but now snuffed out, executed by a brutal dictator. And clearly emboldened by the impact of this political maneuver among the Jews, Herod, end of verse 3, you notice, proceeded to seize Peter also, the apostle Peter, through whose preaching in Acts 2, the Lord was pleased to add around 3,000 people in a single day to the church. Initially, he's imprisoned. And Peter's reputation for escaping prison precedes him, doesn't it? So Herod sends him to a maximum security facility, assigning no less than 16 soldiers to ensure this one prisoner remains locked up. Let's be under no illusion, though, as to Herod's ultimate plan for Peter. I think we can assume that he intends a show trial and is only delaying his execution out of respect 
for the Jewish Passover. So do you see what is happening in Acts 12? Preachers of the gospel are being taken out one by one, silenced. The word of God is under attack. This is a desperate situation for the early church. Seemingly hopeless too. I mean, how can a still relatively small band of Jesus followers possibly hope to resist this and stand up to this crackdown by Herod's regime? But notice, by the end of chapter 12, there is a dramatic reversal. Because Herod, this seemingly all-powerful dictator, is himself wiped out. The chapter begins with a God-fearing man, a preacher of righteousness, unjustly murdered in cold blood. It ends with a man who has no fear of God, who murders a beloved apostle of the Lord Jesus, now subject to perfect divine justice. And you know, the scenario outlined for us at the beginning of chapter 12 is repeated today in many parts of the world where the gospel is advancing. Pastors, preachers, teachers, many other believers arrested, intimidated, imprisoned, executed. Last month, for example, marked the 7,000th day of imprisonment for two pastors in Eritrea. Eritrea is number four on Open Doors World Watch List. But you know, even in this country where there's still a good measure of freedom to preach and share the good news of Jesus, even here, let's not be surprised if trouble comes our way when the gospel advances. I've seen it in every church where I've been a member or a leader. When people are coming to faith, or people are growing in faith, people are being baptized, or if there's some significant um, opportunity to reach out into the community, opposition in one form or another will never be far behind. On a personal level too, you may be making good progress in sharing your faith with someone at work or a friend at school or college or a family member, but don't be surprised if there's a sudden setback in the relationship, or if suddenly for no reason they lose interest. Or if you find yourself under pressure or facing temptation in an apparently unrelated area. You see, our enemy, the devil, is always about his work, using all means at his disposal to resist the progress of the gospel in our own lives and in the lives of others. He may work through those in authority, as here in Acts chapter 12 with Herod. Or he may simply set up various roadblocks and distractions to try and steer you and I off course especially if he sees us having some measure of success in sharing our faith with unbelievers. Uh, You may remember from our studies in 2 Corinthians earlier this year, Paul's concern that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, sadly, of course, we Christians are prone to fall asleep at the wheel. And so often we are unaware of the devil's schemes. And so we end up doing his work for him. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if we see God in his goodness adding to our number those who are being saved. Don't be surprised if at the same time tensions start to rise among us. Well, there's an increase of grumbling and a critical spirit. Don't be surprised. Satan will do everything in his power to frustrate the progress of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of others. And this is the normal Christian life, which we expect trouble of all kinds whenever and wherever the gospel advances. But wonderfully, Acts 12 teaches us that when trouble comes, we are not powerless. Our situation is never hopeless. Indeed, far from it. Because secondly, verses 5 to 11, we can pray earnestly to our all-powerful king. Verse 5 is a key summary verse, helping us understand how and why this narrative unfolds as it does. So, verse 5, Peter was kept in prison. There's the trouble 
as the gospel is powerfully advancing in the preceding chapters, Peter was kept in prison, but, and here's the response that God looks for among his people in times of stress and trial, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Or a more literal translation from the ESV, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And that root word translated earnest is used very rarely in the New Testament. It's used just two other times by Peter himself in his first letter where he urges Christians to above all love one another deeply or earnestly. And then it's used on another occasion by Luke, the author of Acts. He writes in his gospel that Jesus, you remember, contemplating the cross, being in anguish, prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now we have to pause here for a moment, don't we? For a bit of self-examination. Not to heap guilt on ourselves, certainly not to stand in judgment over anybody else. But for each of us who are followers of Jesus this morning, to ask ourselves honestly before the Lord, how committed am I to earnest prayer? Which doesn't mean, by the way, shouting at God or whipping up fake fervency. No, it means being determined, heartfelt, serious about prayer, disciplined too. I remember reading uh, some years ago in a helpful book by uh, Don Carson that uh, the reason many of us don't pray with any kind of regularity is because we don't plan to pray. This is an area where the Holy Spirit has been convicting me deeply for the last really five or six years particularly about the poverty, half-heartedness, distinct lack of earnestness and discipline in my own prayer life, yes, even as a Christian leader. And as I look back over what in many ways have been quite a few difficult few years for me, both personally and ministry-wise, I can now see that one of the things the Lord has been teaching me in preparation for this wonderful but challenging role, he's been teaching me to pray more earnestly. Yes, for myself, for my own needs, recognizing that apart from the Lord Jesus, I can do nothing, but also for others and for the church and for the world outside that doesn't know Jesus. And just two and a half months into this wonderful new role that the Lord has entrusted to me, I am so thankful now for those difficult lessons. But I am still learning. And I still ask the Lord Jesus often, as the early disciples did, Lord, teach me to pray. And I I pray that for above our church too. Lord, teach us as a church to pray. Because it's right, isn't it, to consider together how committed are we to earnestly praying as a church. One of the above bar values is that we're God-dependent. But is that just a neat tagline on our website? Or is it the reality of church life here in the city, over in the east? Well, I hope in the autumn to share with you a vision that I've started to share with the staff team about a a regular whole church prayer time where we turn this entire building into a house of prayer. But for now, I've got to leave that thought hanging because I need to strike camp and swiftly move on from verse 5 of a 24-verse chapter. Uh, But maybe one little challenge for today. I know there's a World Cup final on after this service, but actually tonight, quarter past eight, there is an opportunity to pray online. I think details are out in the weekly email. I'm determined I'm going to make it. I haven't made everyone so far. Tonight I'm going to. Would you please maybe share with me, make that commitment now quietly before the Lord that you too will come and join me. I don't know what the maximum is, uh, but it would be lovely if 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 we passed the maximum, wouldn't it? We can't all get online. I don't know. But please, let's hear that challenge as a church. But uh, in order to stimulate our own earnest prayers, I want to spend just uh, some brief time reflecting on the outcome of the early church's earnest prayer to God for Peter. 
Let me firstly, though, deal with what some skeptics say about this passage, uh, those who don't believe in angels or the miraculous. Uh, The Greek word translated angel, they say, can also simply mean messenger, and that's true. So what really happened in Acts 12, they say, is someone bribed the commanding officer, woke Peter, and escorted him out in full view of the 16 soldiers with a nudge and a wink. Well, the problem with that interpretation is that Luke is at pains to stress in the way that he writes this carefully investigated account that the events recorded here are undeniably supernatural. Just look with me at some of the language that he uses. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. So this angel bypasses the prison guards posted at the entrance and just appears in a prison cell. A bit like Mr. Ben, for those of you of a certain age. Oh, there's more than I thought. It's going to go over the heads of many. But do you remember? Suddenly, as if by magic, ping! The shopkeeper appeared. And in terms of the light, please don't imagine that he flicked a switch and a low-energy light bulb is swinging from the ceiling. Now, we know, don't we, in the Bible that a a shining light, not a swinging light, a shining light is usually associated with the presence of angels. The only surprise here, I think, is that Peter has to be struck on the side before he wakes up. Uh, With some sanctified imagination, we might think this glorious angelic being might be a bit miffed, a bit upset. Hmm. Usually the the blindingly bright light does the trick. I'll have to nudge this one, Lord. Most people in the Bible are terrified when angels appear. So the angel has to say, don't be afraid. But not Peter, he's sound asleep. And remember verse 6, this is the night before Herod was to bring him to trial. So we might expect that Peter would be having a restless night, anxiously wondering what his fate might be the next morning. Not at all. Clearly Peter is sleeping peacefully and deeply And Luke wants us to know it. Peter, you see, is trusting in the Lord. And then notice end of verse 7, how the chains fell off Peter's wrists. There's no mention of a key or of locks being picked or bolt cutters. No, they just fell off. And then look what happens as they come to the main prison entrance. Verse 10, they passed the first and second guards, that's eight in total, and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. Now, clearly, we're not talking automatic sliding doors in a shopping centre activated by a sensor here, are we? This is evidently divine power. Miraculous. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is the wonder of heartfelt, earnest prayer. We pray earnestly, God acts powerfully. Sometimes instantly or quickly and very obviously as here, but more often than not, over time, and in ways that may initially at least be unseen to us. Because that's how he grows our faith. So back in Luke 18, remember Jesus tells his disciples a parable to teach them what? That they should always pray and not give up. But as we pray, let's have in our minds that we are praying to the God who is all-powerful, to the one for whom nothing is impossible, to the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine. Well, some of us may be doubters, Many, if not most of those that we seek to reach with the gospel will, will be sceptical or maybe just laugh in our faces that we believe in such things. But, but Peter has no doubt, does he? First, he thinks he's having a kind of visionary experience. But verse 11, then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. There are echoes here of the words of Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel chapter 3. 
Remember, after God's servants are dragged from the fiery furnace, totally unharmed, not even a whiff of fire or smoke on them, Nebuchadnezzar, the dictator, declares, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Now, Dr. Helen Miller made the point last week, rightly, that uh, angels uh, tend to appear in the Bible at key moments in salvation history so that we're not to expect every time you or I in trouble, uh, an angelic being is going to appear with a sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card and perform a miracle. And that's right. And yet, having said that, let me draw your attention to Hebrews 1 verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Or what about Hebrews 13 verse 2? Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some have entertained angels without knowing it. I don't know about you, I find those verses fascinating. The implication being, I think, that even if we most likely won't see angelic beings turning up in all their glory, shining their blinding light into our personal darkness, they are even so quietly and invisibly still very much about their work in our generation sent by God to serve those of us who are trusting in Jesus, or perhaps yet to trust in Jesus, but yet by grace are inheritors of salvation. But also to test the breadth and warmth of our hospitality and our attitude towards outsiders. Somebody new here this morning, who knows? We don't. If I can put it this way, God sends his angels as well I mean it with reverence, to act like his mystery shoppers, to check out our welcome. Well, I'll leave those thoughts with you to ponder and to pray over. We're to expect trouble when the gospel advances. When trouble comes, we're to pray earnestly to our all-powerful king. And as we do that, let's finally, verses 12 to 24, believe our sovereign king will triumph. I think Luke intends us to see the funny side of what happens when Peter rocks up at the church prayer meeting. The one where, remember, he is the main focus of their earnest prayers. Uh, We're not told what the church is praying for specifically. Maybe asking God to uh, strengthen Peter's faith in the face of his almost inevitable execution. I think it would be fair to assume, though, that some at least would have been earnestly praying for his release, for him to be spared the sword. We can speculate, but we don't know. What we do know from the text is that they certainly do not expect Peter to turn up at Mary's house and interrupt their fervent prayer meeting. But it seems like this servant girl, Rhoda, may have been praying for exactly that. Because look at her reaction in verse 14. When she heard Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. The rest of them are unconvinced. You're out of your mind, verse 15. Subtle, not exactly speaking the truth in love, is it? It must be his angel. Now, it's possible that a human messenger is in mind there. They think someone's come with a message from Peter, but they may also be thinking guardian angel, consistent with the Jewish belief in protecting guiding angels. Uh, One commentator notes these were sometimes thought to resemble the humans that they protected. Either way, notice they are astonished, verse 16, when they finally open the door and see Peter in the flesh. Now, it is quite humorous that even though God answers their prayers so dramatically and almost instantly, they initially refuse to believe it. But I think we should have some sympathy for them too. Uh, At a staff uh, prayer time a a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, um, a few of us were sharing how there have been times when we've prayed, almost casually and with very little faith, certainly not earnestly, 
But we've then been surprised when God actually answers those throwaway kind of prayers. You may have had that same experience. And I think because, you know, God delights to answer the prayers of his children infinitely more than we delight to pray. Let's also not forget that James had been put to death with the sword. So it's understandable, I think, that the church, even as they pray earnestly, might doubt that God will intervene and and break Peter out of prison. And of course, that in itself raises an important question about prayer. Why is it that Peter is released, but James executed? Surely the church would have prayed for James too. Many of us have similar questions, don't we, about prayer? Why does God heal that person, not the other? Why does he intervene powerfully in this situation, but not that one? Why do some of us have to wait many years for unbelieving friends or family members to come to faith, while others are saved at a very young age? Well, it's all part of the mystery of God's sovereignty in answering prayer. He is our all-wise Father in heaven. Yes, he knows how to give good gifts to his children, but he also knows when it serves his purposes or our faith better to withhold such gifts, either for a season or permanently. God alone has the big picture. And let me say in this regard, it's not wrong when we're praying in faith to say, yet, Lord, not our will, but yours be done. That is an expression of trust, not of doubt. Even Jesus himself, the perfect man of faith, prays like that, doesn't he? He asks God, to paraphrase it, if there's another way other than the cross to save people, and yet, not my will but yours be done. That's faith. That's trusting in God's wisdom and sovereignty. Daniel 3, I think, helps us again here. Remember what the three say to Nebuchadnezzar before they're thrown into the fiery furnace? If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. What a great, bold declaration of faith. But, they continue, even if he does not, We want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the images of gold you have set up. What a great, bold declaration of confidence in the all-wise, sovereign God who numbers our days and even the very hairs on our head. Just one closing thought. The final outcome is not in doubt. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning... Spoiler alert, you win. You win. Because you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, the one who has already triumphed by his death on the cross and his resurrection to eternal life. And you know, when he returns on that final day, he will put right every wrong. He will rescue me fully from every trial, every temptation, all my sorrows and all my tears, anything that right now is ranged against me. And in the closing verses, we get a little foretaste of the final judgment that will fall on all those who refuse to trust in and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Herod thinks he's invincible, all-powerful. So when he delivers this public address wearing his royal robes, the people shout, verse 22, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Note the contrast in this chapter between an angel striking Peter for salvation and another angel striking Herod for judgment. And then we have this wonderful concluding remark from Luke as a reminder that the word of God is unstoppable. 
And the good news of Jesus always triumphs in the end. Verse 24, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Herod is dead. God's word is very much alive. Oh, let's be praying that the word of God will continue to spread and flourish in and through above Bar Church, overflowing from us into the city, into Harefield, into Woodlands Community College, into our places of work and our communities, our places of study right around the globe. My brother, my sister in Christ, what will you dare to do for Jesus this week in order to be an instrument of God's continually spreading and flourishing word? I'll leave you that challenge.